Hey there, what's going on? My name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And this is a podcast for sales reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but hate it when they spend all that time writing a cold email and they don't get a response or not feeling confident you know, when they're cold calling. And today's episode is a series that I do with my good friend Jeff Bajoric called Sales Rants. So let's dig in. So today we got four topics that we're going to be running through with my good friend, Jeff Bajorek, who, by the way, has an awesome podcast. So if you haven't checked out the Why in the Buy podcast, it's one of my favorites. I've been a guest on there. Check it out. Just type in Why in the Buy on iTunes or your favorite podcast player and you'll definitely get to see it. But they have really just, I would say, real conversations with people in the sales space. So there's a lot of really good stuff. So make sure to check out Jeff's stuff. In this episode, we're going to be ranting on four topics So why being first to respond is a race to the bottom, which is a really interesting topic to me because in sales, you think like responsiveness is super important, but there's actually, you know, a limit where if you try to be too responsive to people, it can really affect like your productivity and and like how much they respect you (laughs) as well as a prospect. So we're going to dig into this question of, are you sure? So like challenging your own perspective and leaning in and being more curious, how to send your technology on a vacation, and then lastly, how and if you can teach empathy. So you're really going to dig this one. Before we get to the podcast today, I have a quick favor. If you enjoy this show, I'd love to get a review on iTunes. You can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes. That review really helps grow the show so we can get this in front of more people exactly like you. So check it out on iTunes or the podcast app on your mobile phone, on your iPhone, and it would love a quick review. So let's get to the episode. So in sales, we were talking about this earlier, there's kind of this like, don't be the first person to race to the bottom in terms of price, right? Don't be the Walmart, so to speak, of the thing that you sell and be so willing to raise your price. You have a different take on this around response time. Mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. So that seems really counterintuitive because if I'm thinking in sales, I got an order coming, I better be the first person to respond to that because I might lose it. I hear that a lot from people that I work with in like the logistics, uh, you know, industry. It's like, we got to be the first. We have to basically respond and be at the whim of our clients. But what's your take on this? Well, you just said it. The problem is you're at the whim of your clients. Mm. The problem is if it's not you within five seconds, we'll find someone else within five seconds which means you've done zero to differentiate yourself. Mm -hmm. Logistics is like that. I've seen mortgages and title insurance and other things like that 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 are perceived as commodities. It was like that in medical devices. I mean, I I came out of an environment like that. And I remember feeling at that time, like, wait a second, though. I do all this selling. I do all of this differentiation work. I do all of this professional stuff to set myself apart from my competitors. And now I'm just being reduced to who responds first to the email. Granted, it's better to be on that email than not be on the email. Yeah, totally understand. But if you find yourself saying that the only way I get orders is by being the first person to respond, then you can look yourself in the mirror confidently and say that you have not differentiated yourself at all, which means 
you haven't made a real sale. You just got invited to the club. The only thing worse than winning the race to the bottom is finishing second, Jason. You don't want to be in that position. People do it all the time. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. What I'm thinking now is, well, what do you do if you're in that position where you've been commoditized? Well, the first thing that you can't afford to do, but I don't know, 95% of reps do this is you complain to your manager that you need better pricing or you need a way to respond faster because I've been commoditized. They see us as a commodity. Like then you haven't done your job. If you cannot differentiate, you cannot sell, right? So you've got a sale to make. Now, granted, it feels like since you're getting orders, you've made a sale, but if you're still being lumped in with everybody else, you haven't made the sale yet. You have to talk to the people who are placing those orders. You have to talk to those people about what's really important to them. You can be so bold as saying like, look, I realized there was a reason that you invited me to this party. What was that reason? What was the reason you started including me on those emails? What do you value about that? Okay. And what's the real value of that? Is that thing that I bring to the table that nobody else does, is it worth giving me an hour? Is it worth giving me four hours, right? Like, look, when you feel like you have to respond within five minutes, it means you're constantly on your phone or in your inbox, which means you're constantly in reactive mode, which means you cannot work on anything that is a priority, right? So you can either go ahead and make the sale, which is what most people listening to this or watching this are going to have to do right now. Or if you're big enough, you hire someone to watch your inbox and make those first responses, right? That's where you pass it off to. Some people call that customer success. Sometimes it's just a virtual assistant, but you got to think about what that does to your ability to continue to go and grow. And this feeds this whole feeling of why people can't go proactively grow their business because they're too busy worrying about the customers that they think they've already earned, even though, look, if you're on an email with all of your competitors, which one of you has this order for me fast, you haven't won anything. No, I agree. I was going to say what you just recommended, like having the conversation with your client. I think this is really a symptom of you not looking at your client as a peer. Mm -hmm. You know, being intimidated and fearful of losing the order is going to keep you from having that candid conversation that's, hey, next time this happens, you're the first person to respond. And then when you when you get the sale and you follow up after that, hey, Jeff, was want to know how I could serve you better. I would love to chat about what it is that you like about working with us so I can make sure to get you what you need here. And you talk to them and I guarantee you're going to figure out it's not a first come, first serve kind of thing in, in most cases. And you're probably going to find out that there's a small percentage of people that are like that. I would just be willing to lose those sales yep. and talk to people about like, hey, what is an acceptable window here? I can promise you a response time during business hours within two hours. Yep. I can totally do that. And you can also in Gmail out, like you can set up an autoresponder just to respond to people that send from certain emails and said, hey, just letting you know, I got this. If it's an emergency, here's my phone number. But if it's an order, you can count on me to get to this within two hours. Right. If you're supposed to respond within five minutes, how do you give the customer in front of you, the prospect in front of you, more than five minutes worth of your attention? Yeah. Talk about like the opposite of being mindful, right? The opposite of being present, the opposite of giving someone real attention, real empathy, real curiosity is looking at my phone every, and you know, there were those people too. This was back in the days, Jason, you may not remember this back when we had Blackberries, right? And there was a little light that would flash. And every once in a while, the light wouldn't flash, even though you had an email. So then you didn't even trust your device to tell you when there was an email. Like it was just so chaotic. And when you think about it, it's like, wait a second, how many industries 
need things on a minute by minute basis. If your industry needs something on a minute by minute basis, chances are you've already figured out a, a solution to this problem and you don't even have, you probably stopped listening three, three minutes ago. But for most people, why can't two hours be acceptable? Why can't I check my email at 7 a.m., 10 a.m., 1 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m. be available, right? Or viable. You have to believe enough in what you do that you're worth standing above the rest of the crowd who is panicking that they're going to get an order and lose it. Why don't you go find orders that are worth taking? And why don't you go establish yourself as being someone worth calling first or someone worth giving a little extra leeway to so that you can do better than just sitting there looking for that little red circle to pop up on your phone? Yep. And give yourself some guidelines. It'll make you feel better. Mm -hmm. You know, say, hey, my internal policy with myself is that I respond to clients within two business hours. You know, SDRs and BDRs run into this too. When they finally get an email back from a prospect that says, hey, let's take a meeting. And they feel like they'll literally like pause on a coaching call sometimes. You're like, I have to respond. You don't actually. (laughs) It's going to be okay. In an hour, you're still going to be able to respond. There's just as high of a likelihood that they'll respond too. And of course, there's going to be diminishing returns and we are out of time, my friend. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you stopped mid-sentence, man. That is, speaking of discipline and boundaries right there, we may have to revisit that at some point. But yeah. well, let me ask you, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness. Just brought it up. Mindfulness, mm-hmm. presence, awareness. I've been working on this a lot myself, actually, because I think okay. key to seeing opportunities is being still enough to recognize them as opportunities. Otherwise, it's all just noise, right? But there's this concept you told me about. And you said you're you're kind of investigating Buddhism a little bit. And I love that you said, because you feel like you're ready to. Yeah. That's another conversation. But your presence and, and your maturity to say, I think I'm ready to now. You mentioned a question that is on your wall. Are you sure? Where did that come from? Yeah. So some quick backstory on the Buddhism stuff. It's something I've, you know, I'm 31 years old. I've looked at multiple times in the last 15 years, just out of curiosity. You know, I'm half Chinese. So, you know, a lot of Buddhism is in Chinese culture. A lot of it's in Indian culture. And I even meditated, as I told you before this, for a couple of years straight there. And I just quit all of a sudden. This is about five years ago. And I've tried to get back to it since then. And I'm like, now I feel like the time is right to like really think about mindfulness because I think sometimes stuff just has to happen to you in life. That could be burnout. It could be, hey, the people that are close to you in your life, your husband, your wife, your significant other says that you don't listen that well, (laughs) which happened to me. (laughs) Oh, wait, huh? You know, yeah. It's like the most important person in my life doesn't feel like I listen to them that well. That hurts, right? You know, so it's like, well, what am I doing here? And I need to be a little bit more in the moment and stop daydreaming so much, you know? So I just been starting to read about it in that question, are you sure? It's part of, in Buddhism, what they call the eightfold path. And it's kind of these eight, you know, sort of concepts and how you kind of check yourself. But this are you sure thing, it's like challenging your own perspective and thoughts and beliefs around anything that you possibly can and being really mindful about when you're doing that. And the practical application of that first for me was, you know, if my wife, Sarah, was telling me about a perspective that she had on something that I didn't agree with, my gut reaction internally at first for that is like, okay. And then I'm just waiting for her to stop talking and they'd be like, well, actually, here's what I think. No. Oh, interesting. How did you come up with that perspective, Jeff? Or Jeff, okay. Like, instead of, I don't agree with that. Oh, are you sure, Jason? Like, are you sure there isn't something that you're missing here, dude? (laughs) You know? And I started practicing that just a little bit of my personal interactions. And then also 
you know, from a prospecting context, so many people psych themselves out around, I'm going to reach out to this person. Well, I'm not going to call them at this time because surely they're busy and they got so much going on. Why would they need my help? I don't know anything about them. Where you see the exact opposite of that, you get someone on a cold call and it's like, you're so sure that you know exactly what their problem is and that you have the best solution for them versus just kind of stepping back and being like, dude, are you sure? Like having a little bit of curiosity. And this is the tonality piece of cold calling they talk about so much where people try to address the symptom of how you sound versus, hey, if you approach this conversation from a place of curiosity, that's going to make your tone sound a lot like this. It's going to sound very unassumptive. It's going to be very non-threatening, very disarming. So I've been thinking about that a lot and teaching my clients too about objection handling even where I had this one quick, I know I'm kind of ranting here. Go ahead. I had a client that was talking about, she was talking about objection handling and she's just so good on cold calls, by the way, so great on the phone, but she feels uncomfortable making that one extra ask Hmm. and like really digging into the objection because she doesn't want to feel pushy. Hmm. And I was like, well, let's like kind of investigate that a little. Well, she's like, I don't want the prospect to feel like I'm selling them and being really pushy. I don't care about them. I was like, are you sure that that's what they're thinking? Are you sure? Because you've just met this person, you've talked to them for 60 seconds, and you're making all of these assumptions about who you think they are and how they're judging you. What if you just leaned in a little bit and just asked them, oh, you already got that taken care of. Well, hey, that sounds awesome. What are you doing? What if you're just genuinely curious about what they're doing right now that they feel so great about and actually truly being curious? That is so interesting because my first thought is, okay. I know you don't want to be salesy. We're like trained not to be salesy, which means that so many people like forget to sell. They forget that they're in sales because they don't want to be salesy, right? Yeah. I think we've talked about that before. But what up until this point in the 25 minutes that you've had this discovery call, what impression have you given them to this point that you are going to push them, that you are going to cross the line? Like, look, if you're cognizant of it, if you are aware that it is a problem, chances are you are not towing that line. But all of a sudden, that little voice in the back of your head creeps in and says, I don't want, I don't want, man, that's going to toe the line. Yes, you have to toe the line. You have to cross the line every once in a while just to know where the line is. But we talk ourselves out of that. I do too. Talk ourselves out of that. And then I go back and I replay that call in my head. And I'm like, oh, that was, it was right there. Hell, that was a buying signal that I ignored because I was too busy telling myself that I didn't want to be something. I forgot what I wanted to do. Yeah. And when you talk yourself out of it, you have to question it. My wife's starting a life coaching practice. And one of her favorite questions to ask when someone says something like that is, is it true? Which is a version of the same thing, right? It's like, is that true? Huh. Makes you think about it. More often than not, most times you just, you say, oh, wow, I guess that really isn't. And you realize that words have power and everything, but our own sentiments and emotions get the best of us when we're in these situations and you have to train yourself, you have to discipline yourself and to wrap it all the way back and tie a bow on it. You have to be mindful enough to know when you're holding yourself back and instead of giving yourself free reign to be the seller that you know you can be. Hey, let's end there, man. That was, that was good. Cool. Dude, I love it, dude. Okay, you have this concept like taking your tech on vacation. <laughs> okay. Which I love. And it sort of has to do, you know, a lot of the topics we're talking about today are sort of related here around yeah. mindfulness, but around the time that you're not working. So how do you approach that actually? Like when you go on vacation, or you're taking time away from work. 
Is there anything intentional that you do around like tech and any of that sort of stuff to unplug? I do tend to take my tech on vacation. I guess what I was thinking was really more along the lines of sending your tech on vacation. Not oh, put it on a vacation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Vacations are going to be a little different for the next couple of months. Yeah. I do my best. And it depends on the vacation. I have golf trips that I put together. I have golf trips that I just go on. It's a bunch of guys. We're hanging out. Some of us work together. Some of them are clients. Some of us are, you know, some of them are just colleagues of mine. And you know what? It's just open and accepted that, hey, I may have to pull my phone out and I may have to take a call. I may have to make a call. It's not that big of a deal. I prefer anytime I'm golfing specifically though, I'm on the golf course and just, it can wait. We talked about this. No one needs me in five minutes. I'll get back to him a couple hours. It's going to be all right. And I've gotten better about disciplining myself around doing that. When I'm with the family, I'll take my phone with me, particularly if we stay someplace local, because I may not be next to my wife all the time and um, we'll both need phones. And my kids don't have phones yet, so they're no help in that regard. But I can tell you when I went to Italy with my wife two years ago, it was for our anniversary. And I knew that I couldn't bring my laptop and I was going to have to leave my phone in the hotel because it was for our anniversary. So we were going to Italy, a married couple. I wanted to come back a married couple. I didn't want to get divorced while in Europe, right? So my discipline really is to get as much done as I possibly can, as much content scheduled or writing done that I need to do. I let my clients know I'm going to be unavailable for a little bit and I schedule what can be scheduled and I just kind of leave it alone. And then I leave my out of office voicemail and I get compliments on these, Jason. I've done this when we've gone to Disney World and I did this when we went to Italy. I said, I'm out of the office right now. Thank you for your call. Right now, I am with the most important people in the world. And if this is an emergency, call my wife. And if you don't have my wife's phone number, it's not an emergency. I'll get back to you when I get back you know, in the office at this date and, and I'll give you a call. People thank me. They say, thank you for sharing that discipline. Thank you for putting that boundary up. I need to take more time like that. That was actually kind of entertaining. You made me smile. Give me a call back when you get in. And it's cool, right? Because we have to put these boundaries up. We have to let ourselves recharge. Any tool that is not properly maintained will break. And your body, your brain, your spirit, your whole thing is the tool that you do your job with. And um, so you have to mind those kind of concepts. And I think, you know, we're sending stuff on vacation comes from is like, look, if you can't leave, you can't get on a plane, you know, you don't feel maybe someone in your household's high risk and you've got to mind your, your boundaries around who you interact with and where you go, send your tech on vacation, put it in a duffel bag, take it across the street to the neighbor's house. Say, can you watch this for me, please? I'll be back for it on Sunday night. And it's the same thing. You, 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 then you get to be in your home, which is actually a place you're comfortable being without the distractions of work and everything that are always presenting themselves. So that's where that concept kind of came from. It's like, what do you really need? What do you really, really need? If you're with the most important people in the world and you've disciplined yourself to not have to return emails in five seconds, then why can't you let yourself just be? Put the boundary up, go to the beach for a weekend or send your tech to the beach for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Dude, I love this. By the way, it seems like you get a huge sense of relief oh. by doing that, where it's like, ah, I can breathe. All that stuff's like, I don't need to worry about it. It's accounted for. It'll be there when I get back. Yep. The analogy I would use is like a computer that you're trying to open up too many tabs with and the computer starts bogging down <laughs> because multitasking doesn't just happen at work. I don't know about you. What I catch myself doing sometimes, and I've been very good at about it the last you know month and a half or so since making more intention around it. I'd be watching TV and then be surfing the web on my phone at the same time. Oh. And then kind of ch chatting with my wife. And you know, yesterday I was cooking. What was it that we made yesterday? 
It was some sort of, oh, it was chili. So I made chili yesterday and I was talking to my wife on the couch. What do you want to make for dinner? She's like, I was like, chili. She's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good with some garlic bread. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll make some garlic bread. And I go to make dinner. I didn't make garlic bread. I had no recollection of saying, yeah, I'll make garlic bread. (laughs) Zero recollection, dude. And to me, that's one of those things where, hey, maybe if I didn't have my phone, I was actually paying attention to my wife while she was talking. I probably would be more on top of those things. Like, what else am I missing? Work, life, personal, what, like, what are you missing by not being tuned in and just giving the technology a break, dude? It'll, it'll be there. The internet is, is this machine that's always running. It'll be there. Think about your brain and think about that computer with too many tabs open. When the computer has too many tabs open for too long, it just kind of slows down. You got to shut it off and restart it, right? It's the old control alt delete. You get the blue screen of death after too long, right? You need to give yourself the space. But also that mindfulness, that intention, that attention of what am I doing right now? How do you, how are you on vacation and at work at the same time? That's kind of an oxymoron, right? So like, do you need to go on vacation? Then go. I'm trying to work on this with my kids too, because they double screen it all the time. They'll be watching TV while they have their iPads out or whatever. It's like, hold on, one thing at a time, do one thing, do it well, then move on to the next thing. Yeah, man. Love it. All right. Next topic. All right. Empathy, Jason. Empathy is a big part of your brand. Like you are championing this concept. You are trying to do your, well, you're doing really well, but you feel like you can do better at teaching empathy to salespeople, especially because it's something that is, it's a diffuse concept. It's a word we're familiar with, but so many people can't even define it or separate or differentiate it from sympathy, right? So like there's still a lack of clarity around it. And from a definition standpoint, to teach it is something completely different. Yeah. What are you doing with that? Well, I mean, that might be a good place to start, actually, is, is getting your head wrapped around the definition. And man, I think just doing a simple Google search on this is really, really helpful if you're thinking about empathy and more importantly, why I should be more empathetic. You're going to emotionally connect better with your prospects and people buy based on emotion and justifies logic. That the empathy is that emotional connection. Mm-hmm. But sympathy is, you can think about it like I care. I care that something's happening. I care that this person is in a position that is very stressful for them, et cetera. Empathy is I feel. It's actually going a step further and thinking mm-hmm. about, well, what does it feel like to be in this position? Does this person feel helpless? Do they feel anxious? Do they feel excited? Have I felt that way? When have I felt that way before? You know, even beyond that is compassion. And compassion is this urge to help. Like, I want to help this person. And I think in sales, where we need to spend a lot of time is in empathy and compassion. Yes. But when you look at empathy, I didn't really have a lot of empathy because, and I've shared this story lots of times, but the TLDR is essentially growing up, I kind of muted my emotions because a lot of what I saw, you know, my dad do and like great parents, but what I saw my dad do was really almost kind of make fun of people that would draw extra attention to themselves. Mm. So people that accomplished things and their parents celebrated and were so proud of them, it was like, oh, they're drawing extra attention. They're so full of themselves. Right. And then people acting out in public because they're sad or whatever. It's like this person is making it all about them. So when I saw and heard that, what that made me do was, well, I better not do anything that sticks out in a good or bad way, because then I'm not going to get my dad's approval, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So I really kind of just muted my emotions for most of my teenager life, my life as a young adult. This is up until a couple of years ago. And the first step for me was like really understanding, since I was muting my emotions, I wasn't really understanding like how I felt. So when I would get rejected, 
I'll give you an example. I did a lot of cold outreach in the last couple of years to get on other people's podcasts. And one of them happens to host a very prominent conference. And they're like, Jason, this is awesome. We actually want to have you speak at our conference. This is a couple of years ago and we can actually go in person. Yeah. And then I get an email the next day from the person saying, oh, actually, no, sorry. Um, I took another look at your stuff. No. In that moment in my life, because I was paying attention to this stuff, I was like, normally I would just brush it off and be like, oh, be positive. And then it was just like, I would get all this resentment stored up, right? And I just would you know, blow up on someone, not like yell at them or anything, but I just like out of nowhere, it kind of seemed like, right? Yeah. And instead, I just kind of took the time to be like, you know what? Like, I feel rejected right now. And it kind of reminds me of the feeling when I've been dumped you know, yeah. by an ex-girlfriend in the past. And it's like, just being able to identify that helped me also work with people better around coaching them around how they deal with rejection, because I can sit in that feeling with that person, right? Yeah. And the teaching it part, this is actually what I want to ask you about, because I think that sharing that story helps with people and getting them to be like, hey, Jeff, what do you think that prospect's feeling? Like when they see this thing, how do you think that's going to make them feel? If they're experiencing this problem, what are they feeling? But I'm curious because I think there's a lot of parallels with how you teach your kids empathy. And I don't have kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have kids. Is there a correlation there? I'm just, I wanted to get your hot take on this because I think teaching empathy is something that sales leaders, we could do a lot better job of. I think um, a couple of points that'll set that method up or, or example up. If you can't be aware and engaged with your own emotions, it's almost impossible. I don't see how it is at possible at all for you to be aware and engaged of anybody else's emotions. Mm -hmm. But understanding where your prospect, where your customer is when you're talking to them is vital for you to make a salient point, right? It's vital for you understanding context. We work so hard to create context as salespeople that we forget what the prospect brings to that context, right? I mean, they already have their own starting point from where this is. So it's very important to recognize that. From a teaching standpoint, I think there is such a lack of empathy out there that the, the examples and the situations abound for you to be able to teach it. But it gets back to this theme that's kind of running through all of these segments today is this mindfulness, right? So I like to use examples and, and I like to use situations and I like to do it, you know, when you think of a, a teachable moment or a coachable moment, that's where these situations pop themselves up. My daughter's got two guinea pigs and she loves these things to death. She thinks they're the most adorable things in the world. She can't walk by them without talking baby talk to them. It's like she's like the, the hearts just shoot out of her ears every time she walks into the room and sees them. Well, she thinks they're adorable, right? And so she also thinks it's really funny when she'll pick them up. She's getting a little cavalier with this. She'll pick them up. She'll carry them, sit on the couch and pet them while she's reading or whatever. And then she's like, okay, go back to your cage. And she will take with one hand because they're bigger. She's getting bigger too. And they'll set them down. And then as soon as they hit the ground, they scurry as fast as they can and they run toward the cage. Now, guinea pigs don't see very well. Guinea pigs don't know when they're across the room where their cage is. Okay. But she thinks it's adorable. Yesterday, she was a little higher up in the air and this guinea pig essentially jumps out of her hand. Unnecessary information, but important for the context of the story. Rodents have very fragile spines. Mm -hmm. So if they fall, if they jump, right, they could literally kill themselves. So I asked my daughter, I said, look, I know that you think that's adorable. And I know that your guinea pig just jumped out of your hands and tried to scurry toward. I said, I don't think that's adorable. I think if I was that guinea pig, I was terrified. And that's why I jumped. What would happen if you carelessly let this guinea pig fall and it died? Because I don't think it thinks it's cute. I think it's terrified. And she looked at me and said, oh, 
And for the first time, it sank in to her that this other creature maybe had feelings. I don't know that guinea pigs have feelings, but they do have instincts. Yeah. And, you know, that I think that was an indicator for her that there was something other than her involved in that situation that she needed to be concerned with. Yeah, dude, I love this example because guinea pig may not have a lot of emotions, but it definitely has a few of them, right? It's probably uh, excitement and fear. Those might be the two. Food, yeah. Oh, shit. But I love this example. And, you know, as a sales leader, I mean, you could do that same exact thing mm-hmm. when you're doing call coaching and listening to recording. You said this thing, but let's pause there. Let's listen to the tone of the prospect. They said mm-hmm. what you think are the like the right things to say but what did you pick up about their tone right and like pointing those things out i think as a sales leader having empathy for your people too for your reps that's a great way to teach empathy too like really leaning in trying to understand how they're feeling about something and i don't know say this comes back to the lead by example thing yep and i, I flipped this around on the leaders that i work with i flipped this around on the reps that i work with where it's like they're complaining, you know, the leader's complaining about performance or something. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's flip it around. What's that rep thinking? How does that rep feel to work for you? How does that rep feel in a new situation, in a new territory, in a new company? And they just don't want to screw up. So they're playing it really, really safe. If you thought about why that might be valid, even though it's not what you want. Oh, huh. And all of a sudden you see these connections being made. Yep. And when you, the mental connections are made, the emotional connections between the people can be made too. All right. Thanks for tuning into the episode today. Particularly the topic that I love the most here is like what we talked about around empathy and like if you can teach that. I love talking about empathy and it sucks that it's really like a buzzword right now. Like I think COVID really kind of spurred that. But um, like true, true empathy, I think is something that everyone, including myself, could do a much better job of with the people that we serve and also the people that we interact with in our personal lives. So thanks for tuning in to the episode today and we'll see you in the next one.